Amen. Greatly to be praised is our God. Please remain standing and open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 10. This morning's reading will be verses 1 through 20. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in your hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, and that hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locust and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all of the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. The awe of God in remembrance. That's the title of the message. The awe of God by way of remembrance. 
As I said earlier this morning, the best way to learn to trust God in the present is to study his works from the past. That's what we do when we, when we study the word of God. And here, this judgment sign of locusts, or what's otherwise known as the locust plague, is the second plague of the third and final set of plagues. There are three sets of three judgments, which, of course, are followed by the tenth and final judgment, and that is the firstborn uh, death of all those throughout Egypt. The death of the firstborn, I should say, throughout all of Egypt. Uh, Now, the locust judgment is the middle of the last cycle of judgments. We witnessed a growing intensification, have we not, within these judgment signs? As they grow, they're more intense. And they're ravaging Egypt and the people of Egypt. Last time, as Moses raised his staff towards the heavens, the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire. We read in Exodus 9, verse 24, that there was hail and fire flashing continually. In the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. That's a long time. Now, through it all, beloved, Egypt's false deities are being mockingly opposed by the one true God. That is exactly what we're witnessing here in the Exodus. As you know, Egypt worshipped many gods, man-made deities. They worshipped the Nile. So Hopi, their man-made god, who brought annual flooding to keep Egyptian soil fertile, was assaulted as the Nile was turned to blood, creating the stench of death. There was Hecate the goddess of fertility, whose image was that of a woman with a frog's head, was assaulted by way of a frog plague upon the land. You have Apis, the the bull deity, who was mocked as Egyptian livestock dropped dead in the fields, but not in Goshen, where Israel was set apart and protected. And then there's Geb or Keb, Uh, the God of the earth, who was beaten, we saw last time, with unprecedented hail. That did not fall in Goshen, where God's people were. Now, ever since the fall, the fertile imaginations of fallen men have labored tirelessly to form gods out of and into man's own corrupt image. And here, this morning, we learn about two more man-made deities of Egypt. They were known as Isis and Min. Both of whom were connected to the yearly crop cycle. One scholar believes that Min is the likely candidate for the judgments of both hail and locusts. Because at the beginning of each harvest season, Egypt held this big party. It referred to as the coming out of men celebration. And here, what do we see? The, the, the plagues of hail and, and the plagues of locusts upon the land utterly devastates men's coming out party, if you will. Destroys it. 
Now, the central figure of, of God's harsh dealings is, of course, the Pharaoh. This Pharaoh, who was thought to be the incarnation of Re, the sun god. That is, the chief god of the Egyptians. So, it's inevitable that there's going to be a showdown. Because the one true God will vindicate his name. He will. He always has. And he always will. Now, prior to the the last sign judgment of hail, Moses pauses. Okay, Prior to its release, Moses, Moses pauses in the narrative and provides this rather lengthy theological introduction. Defining God's purpose in raising Moses up. We learned about that last time. And that is to show his power and to proclaim his name in all the earth. So just as God raises up Moses to lead Israel, God also reveals the fact that he is the one that has placed Pharaoh in his position. God is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. Always has been, always shall be. Can I get a witness? Okay, which is to say, God was no less sovereign in raising up Pharaoh for the sake of destruction than he was raising up Moses for the sake of deliverance. You get the picture? We learn in Acts 17 through the preaching of Paul that he, God, made from, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, God that is, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That is to say, beloved, that is to say, according to scripture, God is not passive. God is not passive. Circumstances do not determine his plan. His plan determines circumstances. He's sovereign. And again, The best way to trust God in the present is to study his works from the past, seeing here his predetermined will will come to pass. It will come to pass. Now, we were also minded last time that the Bible squashes the the common modern notion that God treats all people the same. The common notion that God just smiles down upon all of humanity equally. Not true. You know, as though God were some politically correct egalitarian. That's not the story of Exodus. That is not the story of the Bible. God does, however, mysteriously and graciously, he he, he mysteriously and graciously chooses to extend his mercy to some. But not all. To some. And Romans 9 provides greater insight into that truth. We learned last time as we looked at that. That it's God who is the potter. And the potter is sovereign over the clay. And we learn in Romans 9.18 that he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Reminding us that God is not obligated to grant the sinner his mercy and his grace. He is not obligated to anyone. 
you look back at verse 16 of chapter 9, what do we see? For this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now that's the verse that, that brought us to Romans 9. Because Paul highlights that verse with regard to God's sovereignty and showing mercy to whom he will and hardening whom he will. In other words, beloved, some get justice, some get mercy, but no one gets injustice. No one gets injustice. Some do get mercy. And some will receive justice. So as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's mercy and grace is something that we are greatly thankful for, or certainly ought to be. Amen. Greatly thankful. If, however, beloved, we fail to remember that his mercy is his mercy. If we fail to remember and that he he distributes his mercy as he pleases, if we forget that, we will lose a proper biblical worldview. We will lose sight of a proper proper biblical worldview and we'll soon forget that grace truly is undeserved and we'll come to expect it. And then we'll slide down the slippery slide of not only coming to expect it, but also demanding it. But here, Moses now, before the next plague, of locusts, he pauses yet again to provide another introduction before the release of the locusts. And the main point of emphasis here this morning is that of remembrance. The point of focus is remembrance. Remembering who God is and what he has done. So with that in mind, we move to the first point. And these are outlined for you in your bulletin. And the first point is this. God's people must remember that we must remember. Amen? Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know I am the Lord. Israel, that you remember my harsh dealings with the Egyptians so that you will know I'm God and I'm the only one true God. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. So here now, Moses proceeds into the palace, as was his custom in the second plague of each of the three cycles. Okay, in the first of each judgment cycles, he meets Pharaoh down at the water, down at the Nile. In the second set of each series or cycles, he meets Pharaoh in the palace. And then the third set of each of the three cycles, the judgment comes unannounced. A nice pattern there. And then here in verse 1, we hear this outstanding directive. Get this. Go to Pharaoh because I've hardened his heart. That's what every preacher loves to hear. That's the most dismal news any preacher could ever receive. That's like saying, go to this congregation. They're not going to hear one word you say. 
They're not going to receive anything you say, and I want you to go. So go. It's like Jeremiah. You know, Isaiah. The more you preach, the harder they're going to become. Oh, my goodness. However, beloved, it is precisely because God is sovereign and in absolute control that he sends Moses back. Proverbs 21.1, what do we read? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Verse 2, notice this. He actually says that you, singular Moses, may tell in the hearing of your son, singular, and your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with Egypt. Now, harshly, that word there is a word that means to make sport of, to mock. How I have mocked this false God. See, the point is, of course, that God wants all of the children of Israel to tell their children of these great feats of God and their children's children. The glorious wonders performed by God in the Exodus. But but he says it this way, Moses, I'm doing this so that you will tell your son and your grandson as though Moses stands as the representative for the whole people of God. And he does. He does. And that's what he ends up doing in chapters 32 and 33. He stands as a mediator between God and Israel. In other words, Moses is a type of Christ to come. Standing as mediator between God and his people. That's what Christ does for us. The risen, incarnate Son of God stands and mediates on our behalf. He is our mediator. We're accepted by way of the Son to the Father. And here, Moses is instructed to show these things, write these things, so the the, the next generation and generations to come may know that I am the Lord. I'm God. There is no other. Communicating to the future generations who God is and what he has done. That is, beloved, to know and to remember. And when you know and you remember, you what? You worship. God is creating a worshiping people because they've been redeemed. This is how our faith is passed on, beloved. This is how the faith is passed on. Always has been passed on. It will continue to be passed on as we testify to the mighty deeds and the great works of our sovereign Lord, providing redemption for us. We pass this on to our children. That's what we're doing here. That's the beauty of the hope we have in raising our children in the faith. Hey, little children, children, children. There, you're looking at me. Great. As the pastor here, I am so happy. And your parents and these people around you are so happy, very blessed to tell you the truth about Jesus Christ. To show you and tell you, you need Jesus as much as we do. You need to be saved from your sin. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus alone, one day you're going to die. We all do. The certainty is... You get to go be with him forever. 
That's what we're passing on. That's why we're here. We're reminding ourselves that we must be reminded of these things. The majority of those, beloved, who come to saving faith were typically brought up in the faith. Or at least they had a person or some persons that come from a godly heritage. In other words, they believed. And they pass it on. Because they remember the truth. They know the truth. You know, many of Israel's hymns are songs of remembrance. Teaching, learning, and remembering through the Psalms. Song? Songs? Passed on to generations. On down the line. You know, with the observance of the Passover, when we get to chapter 12, we read this in verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Or mama, papa, why do we do what we do? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they what? Worshipped. They worshipped. The, the, the focus of remembrance for Israel is due to the fact that what God is doing here in Israel will not only deliver them as a people, but it also, beloved, defines them as a people. We've been delivered. We're defined by who we serve. Because who we serve is the one who's accomplished our redemption. And we, in turn, are worshipers. Now, after 40 years in the wilderness, prior to entering the promised land, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently. Take care of your soul. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. Amen? This is what we must do. Now, we have to remember also that some that were saved from Egypt weren't saved from hell. Okay? In Romans 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, beloved, his true family is a family of true faith. Many people can grow up in the church as unbelievers and go to hell. But they're not part of the true church. They're not regenerate. They just grow up around it, familiar with it. Recite this, recite that, and go to hell. Now, to maintain the locus of our focus, to maintain the point of attention of our focus is to make known the Lord Jesus Christ from generation to generation. That's what we're here to do, amen? This is what we must do. We gather in worship to teach, remembering who God is and what it is he has accomplished for those that are his by way of faith. So worship, as we've been studying with the men on Thursday nights, worship is about expressing the worth or worthiness of God. That's what worship is. Studying David Wells' book, God in the Whirlwind. Today, beloved, unfortunately... Worship has become more about the worshiper than the one being worshipped. 
And that was the emphasis of our last chapter. You know, most people think that worship is singing. Okay, you have worship, we sing, and then we hear the guy preach. This is worship. Get it? Good. Most people think that that worship is singing and, and how I feel when I do it. How I feel when I sing. Let me make it clear. If you're a visitor here, or if you're checking this church out, worship is not about you. This gathering is not about you at all. This is about worship to the God, one God who deserves all glory unto himself. We're a redeemed people. Here remembering what's been done. So we worship. The music is not for you. The style is not for you. It's for the glory of God. Period. You know, some people in our day, they think that worship is okay. I, got, I need to close my eyes and separate myself from everyone around me so I can you know, have this esoteric experience. That is not what worship is about. This is a corporate body worshiping together. Amen? The one true God. Whenever Israel failed to rightly remember God, they failed to rightly worship God. They forgot his truth. They forgot his redeeming work. They forgot his supreme worth. And then they fell prey to the esoteric experiences of pagans. And you know where that ended them up? In exile. (laughs) Under the hand of God's judgment. Now, Juxtaposed to the experiential modern-day worshiper is the intellectual reformed worshiper who think that a particular Reformation style of liturgy or, or, or songs only from the Psalter or the Trinity hymnal, by the way, is to be followed in order for them to experience proper worship. Newsflash for both sides, for both extremists. Music and liturgy cannot make a non-worshipping heart into a worshipping one. Cannot. As one writer puts it, the danger is that it can can give the non-worshipping heart the sense of having worship because they did their stuff their way. Danger. Now, many of those I've learned, come to learn over the years, who complain on both sides are those who think they can live any way they please during the week and come on Sunday and just flip on the worship switch so long as we do worship the way I think it should be done. But friends, style and liturgy cannot remedy a worshipless heart. It won't do. Amen? Amen? We come to be edified. And you know what edification is? Let me tell you what it's not. Edification does not mean that you come here to feel better. Edification means that we walk out living better for the glory of God. That's what it is to be edified. It has nothing to do with mere emotion. Can I get a witness? May we know this. So corporate worship is about reflecting on and remembering the doctrine of God, 
his truth, his redeeming work, and his redeeming worth. His work, his worth. And then blessings, you see, do come to the worshiper in response to proper worship. But friends, you are not going to be blessed, or, or I should say not blessed, because of poor worship or poor preaching. Now, if you want solid worship, and again, it's the content, it's the words that we sing, it's not the beat particularly. If you're in a good church, the content of what you sing is going to be solid, it's going to be biblical. And then you want to be under sound preaching. Preaches the whole counsel of God without apology. This is a good church, this is a solid church. So, if, if you're not blessed by way of worship... It's not due to the preaching, and it's not due to the music. It's due to a selfish heart, not willing to give God the glory due his name. I'm glad we don't have that problem here. But just in case it's stirring anywhere, we'll nip it now. So, just like Israel, beloved, we must remember that we must remember rightly about our Redeemer. Because that creates then acceptable worship. Amen? Point two. We must remember his warnings. Because within his warnings are our interwoven mercies. Interwoven mercies. We see this in verses three through 10. In verse 4, he says, look, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. There's not much left, beloved. Here's the warning. There ain't much left. If you don't let my people go, they'll eat the rest. You see, with these strokes of judgment come tokens of mercy and opportunity to repent and believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're under his condemnation and you will be judged in eternal hell. The interwoven mercy is in the warning. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. Amen. That's mercy. So he pinpoints the time. He provides them ample knowledge of when and where his judgment will fall. And his judgment will fall, as promised. But not without interwoven mercy of forewarning. It's only in the third of each set of three that there's no warning. Plenty of warning before, amen? Without excuse was Pharaoh and Egypt. Notice in verse 7 what Pharaoh's servant said to him. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Pharaoh, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Even the people around Pharaoh are saying, Pharaoh, you've got to listen to Moses. His God, this Yahweh, has devastated our land. People have been sickened. Livestock have been struck dead. So here in desperate response, they plead with Pharaoh. And here now Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back in and he tries to bargain with them. Verses 8 through 11. 
So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. He said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go again? Duh. Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, well, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. So here, you know, it sounds like at first that he's going to comply. This is the second time he tries to negotiate. Remember the first time? He said, you can go, but you can't leave the land of Egypt. Okay? This time, you can take the men with you, but leave the women and children behind. You can go with the men. It can be boys' time. Boys' town. And what he's getting at is, I'm going to keep your women and children hostage, so you'll have to come back. No, that's not the instruction of the Lord. We see here, beloved, what God desires, God gets. God demands a full redemption, he gets a full redemption because he's the redeemer. Amen? He's the redeemer. He wants all of his people out. He wants a full and complete redemption of his people. There's no such thing as a partial redemption. All those he calls to himself, he calls out of the world and to himself. That's why you can't live with one foot in the world and one foot in the faith. Full redemption out and into promise. So Moses here, notice he he doesn't bite with his attempt at a negotiation here because it's not Moses' right to negotiate. Amen? He is to carry out God's will, God's Order, because he is only, beloved, this, a steward of the word. He is not the originator of the word. That's why I don't give a rip what people think about me when I declare the whole truth of God. Right? If it's my own opinion, well, then, then you, you can say what you want. But when it's the word of God, I don't care what you think. Meaning in general, not you particular, but in general. Because it's his truth. I don't negotiate Amen? This is his truth. And that's Pharaoh. His judgments will fall. He declares it. So notice in verse 10, um, Pharaoh in in anger now responds sarcastically to Moses. He says, yeah, your God had better be with you if ever I let you all go. He better be with you because that's the only way I'm ever going to let you all go. That's what he's saying. Oh, really? It will only happen if this Yahweh makes it happen. What will we see in a couple weeks? He makes it happen. He makes it happen. Verse 11, no, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. Moses, let me tell you what you really mean by what you say. Let me tell you what your God really means by what he says. And then they were driven out. From Pharaoh's presence. You know, Pharaoh's response here, beloved, gives us some insight into how the human, the fallen human mind works. It's no different today. When, when confronted with the clear commandments of God, they attempt to alter what God means by what he says. Yeah, I know what it says, but it has to be more palatable than that. I know what it says, but it has to be more manageable than that. After all, we live in the 21st century, and everyone thinks they're a victim. So we can't crush people's little hearts, can we? They might be offended. 
hogwash. But that's how fallen men think. So Moses, he refuses to deviate in the slightest degree of what God has strictly demanded. Strict obedience is what he demands. True of Moses in the Exodus, also true of God's eternal salvation secured through Jesus Christ. He demands absolute, strict obedience for anyone to be saved from their sin. In other words, strict obedience to his law. What do I mean? Well, just as disobedience to his law brought judgment and condemnation, salvation from sin and for the forgiveness of sin was accomplished by perfect, strict obedience to the law. But you didn't do it because you can't do it. Strict obedience to the law was fulfilled by the Son of God in the place of sinners who believe. God demands it. Nothing less is acceptable. Look at Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, friends, the consequence of of Adam's sin back in the garden is that we are all born guilty. You were born guilty. We die because we've been reckoned as sinners in Adam. He was our representative in Eden. And he disobeyed. He broke God's law. So that disobedience is imputed to us. And it shows up in our human nature. Adam. And that is to say, we're not not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's why you sin. You were born a sinner. You're born with that nature. Look at your children. You can tell they're sinners just hours after you bring them home. (laughs) And I'm going to see my little sinning grandson this afternoon, who who I love, who I know needs to be redeemed. So he's going to hear the plan of redemption and God's promises. as, as, As I recall, remembering I must remember and teach him the same truth which will be, is his father's responsibility, I've tr- who I've trained. You see? It just goes on. So from conception, beloved, we possess a dead nature. We're inclined towards rebellion. We're inclined towards rebellion. We're, 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 we're inclined towards rebellion against our creator because we're in Adam. But Adam's not the only reason we're condemned. Because what we do as sinners is we compound our guilt by our own transgressions and sins. See, outside, you're in trouble. You're born in trouble. You live in trouble. And without Christ, you'll die in trouble. Eternal trouble. Thanks be to God, amen, for the last Adam. Because the last Adam remedies the situation. The last Adam is Jesus Christ. Adam's sin and our sin brings death. The first death and the second death. The first death, physical death. Second death, eternal torment. But the obedience of Christ, beloved, according to this text, brings life. Amen? Look at it. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
The one man's obedience is another way of saying one life of obedience. The one perfect life of obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. So by the, the one life of obedience, the Lord creates or he constitutes for us a righteous status, Christian. You have a righteous status because of Christ's perfect, strict obedience to the law. Your status is holy perfection because you're in Christ, who is perfectly obedient, if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you stand on your own, condemned. And you need Christ. So we're not justified just because we have faith. We're justified because we have Christ's obedience. Amen? We have Christ's obedience. And, And faith is simply the means by which we are united to Christ. We are in union with God through Christ. Given a faith, gifted a faith to believe in the Son of God and his work and his worth in our place. This is the glorious work and accomplishment of the last Adam. So to trust Christ as Lord is to have his obedience credited to you. It is to have his payment for disobedience also credited to you. Yes, glory to God. Woo! <laughs> Amen? Not by doing anything, but by trusting in the one who held to strict, perfect obedience to the law of God. Trusting. So we remember, we remember his interwoven mercies shown to us by warnings of judgment. The warning today is repent and believe. Those who repent and believe receive that mercy. Receive that grace. We remember this. Amen? Next, we remember God's blessings of creation. That is, we remember the resources he provides through what's known as common grace. And we also remember, beloved, his power to reverse them in judgment. Verses 12 through 15. The Lord unleashes his judgment through the outstretched hand of Moses and the hail or the locusts come just as the Lord said. And as you read the account, as we did this morning, Egypt has been defoliated. The greenery, gone. Which means their food is gone. And now it's going to be a matter of starvation and famine. He's just utterly destroyed their land. What does this remind us of 430 years earlier? Egypt was facing a great famine, and God delivers them by way of Joseph. He delivers them from such a famine. Famine deliverance 430 years earlier. Now in God's judgment, he's going to remove the food from Egypt. First, by way of hail, everything that's left over, devoured by locusts. Now, locust plagues are as frightening as they are devastating. I've never experienced them. I've seen videos of them. Perhaps you've seen videos of them. Um, In 1875 was the largest locust plague ever recorded in the heartland of the old United States of America. Praise God for the country you live in. Amen? This is Pearl Harbor Day. We remember. Amen? We remember. Our nation was attacked. 
We remember how people have stood in the place to protect this country. Our great veterans, amen. Israel remembered. We remember. Plenty of things we remember. Uh, None more important than we, we remember the work and worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, this plague, this locust plague in America, records indicate it stretched for 1,800 miles north to south, 110 miles wide. And you remember Laura Ingalls Wilder? Remember Little House on the Prairie and all that she wrote? She writes in her memoirs um, on the banks of the Plum Creek the following, quote, The cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered. The rasping, wearing of the wings filled the whole air, and they hit the ground in the house with the noise of a hailstorm. She describes how she, she tried to beat them away, but their claws clung to her skin. They clung to her dress. She also describes how they got tangled in her hair. They looked, she said, they looked at me with their bulging eyes, turning their heads this way and that. They covered the ground. There was not one bare bit to step on. And you could hear their grinding of their jaws. End quote. Imagine Egypt's devastation. Stricken with hail, they experienced the death of animals. You, you got a frog plague, flies, biting gnats. Their beloved Nile turned to blood, and now this. After all this destruction, the locusts take over the land of Egypt. So God here is removing his creational provision. Common grace blessings, gone. The fact that we have trees and plants and water, common grace blessings. Gone. He is decreating. He is deconstructing his created order. We'll see this more vividly when we get to the ninth judgment sign of darkness. So provision here and in common grace blessing are leaving Egypt. Disappearing. And, And it leaves them in a position of emptiness, chaos, and torment. Think about this. Emptiness chaos, and torment. What do you think that foreshadows? Hell. Read the Revelation. Hell. Chaos, emptiness, darkness, torment. No one's going to hell to have a party. No one's going to hell to open up a bar with their friends, okay? You hear these morons speak. I'll just throw a party. No, you won't. You will not be with your friends. You will be alone. Cast into outer darkness where there's mourning, wailing, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outside of Christ. Because you will have to bear God's judgment for your sin. Or you come under the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And escape. So we must remember, beloved, James 1.17. As we, as we partake of, of all this, this, this glorious goodness and kindness of God, fresh, clean water, meals, right, food, snacks, nice building, homes. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Amen? Amen? So we must remember here, all of our blessings, all of our resources come from his providential hand. Another thing to remember. And that he has the power to de- decreate everything that he's created in his judgment. Next, finally, remember, 
God's sovereignty over dishonest repentance and over the reprobate. Verses 16 to 20. Here it is again. Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God. I've sinned against you. Now therefore forgive my sin. Please, only this once, plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from the Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Here again we see superficial repentance. This repentance, friends, again, is repentance that needs to be repented of. It's not true repentance. This is like Esau. As we read in Hebrews 12, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Why? It wasn't true repentance. It wasn't true repentance. Esau was remorseful, but he didn't truly repent. Pharaoh's repentance is a kind of strategic remorsefulness. 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 It's strategic. He, he wants the judgment lifted. So he cries like a baby. Lift it. Please plead with your God to lift the judgment. He's sorry because he wants the situation to relent. He's not standing before God repenting. We've all done this. We've all done this. And the minute it relents... He goes right back to his former posture. This is a dog that returns to its vomit. Such is the nature of a dog. He doesn't even know that he made the mess in the first place. He walks around. He sniffs a few things out. He comes back and goes, oh, a snack. That's the nature of the beast. You ever seen a dog do that? I watch my It's ridiculous. But such is scripture. Spot on. Dog returns for a moment. He's in hell. Pharaoh's in hell. Today. Forever. So in spite of Pharaoh's hard-hearted unbelief, in spite of his false repentance, God's sovereignty is highlighted over it all. Verse 20, but the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people go. So Pharaoh, he buckles under the pressure. He cries out under God's judgment, and God hardens his heart. Now, the text does not say, by the way, as some try to make it say, that God merely allowed Pharaoh to harden his heart. I appreciate their effort trying to get God off the hook there. That's not what the text says. God's intent from the beginning, Exodus 4.21, I will harden his heart, he will not let the people go. I admit, beloved, it is a scary thing to see this occur, not only on the pages of scripture, but also to this very day. There's a real sense in which we go wrong in our thinking, especially with young people. Thinking, yeah, I believe the facts about all of this truth that I've heard mommy and daddy tell me about Jesus, but I'm going to hold off to truly serve him until I get a little older. I'm going to go have my fun now. I'm going to go live the way I want now. And I'll serve Jesus later. When I get a a little bit older and life's a little more serious, then I'll get serious about the faith. Danger. 
We have to remember this as well. The door of salvation is not guaranteed to remain open. There's no guarantee that it's always open. None at all. There may very well be a time where God in his sovereign choice chooses to close the door of opportunity. Now is the day of salvation. There's the possibility, beloved, if we don't use the truth, we will lose the truth. Listen to what Jesus said. Disciples came to him. He's speaking in parables. And he did this intentionally. Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To them it has not been given. That passage, beloved, assumes God chooses to save only in part sinful humanity. The rest he leaves to hardened unbelief. In other words, they're left in their idolatry. Pharaoh was left in his idolatry, hardened in his idolatry. Hardened in false worship. Let me say this. God does not create unbelief in the sinner. We we can do that on our own. God is not to blame when sinners refuse to repent. A person's final response to God's word reveals whether or not he's God's elect. You know, I've heard people say to me, I just don't know if I'm his elect. Well, repent and believe and trust in Christ and you'll see that you're his elect. Don't and you won't. Pretty simple. Don't get all hung up on who's elect and who's not. Repent and believe and it'll be discovered through scripture you're his elect. Don't and it won't. Don't play with this sovereign creator. There's some people who hear and they fall never to rise again. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their eyes have closed. That's the reprobate. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop with the reprobate. Notice, he builds encouragement within his elect. Matthew 13, 16. But blessed are your eyes. Remember that you must remember that you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Every time we recall, beloved, that we've we've trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, we ought to marvel at God's grace. Marvel! Marvel! remembering and repeating that truth to our children, remembering and repeating that to all these little ones for all these years to come, you can only see because God grants you the grace to see. Now, I want you to notice as we close, in this eighth plague, God reveals the root of Pharaoh's hardened heart. You know what it is? It's the root of all sin, pride. Look back at verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? His unwillingness to heed God's word is due to pride. It always is. 
refusing to acknowledge God as God, thinking I am the master of my own domain. Used to think like that. Did you not? Before Christ? Unless you were blessed to come to faith in Christ at a young age, you thought you were the master of your own domain. I know I did. And you know, it's especially hard for people who've worked hard to overcome difficulty in life who arrogantly proclaim, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, to quote William Ernest Henley's, Hensley's uh, 19th century poem, Invictus, Latin for unconquered. And he apparently had bone disease when he was a kid. His leg was amputated. So he grew up to overcome all these obstacles. It's like the person who says, I had cancer, I fought cancer, and I beat cancer. You beat nothing. It's the grace of God alone. And if you're an unbeliever, it's the grace of God alone that perhaps interwoven within it is the ability for you to repent and believe. And if you're a believer, it's for his sovereign purpose alone. And we can rest knowing where we're going if it does take us. So Pharaoh refused to humbly receive the word of God, maintaining an unconquered heart. Those who refuse to be humbled by God's word will eventually be humiliated by his judgment. Such is the case with Pharaoh. So Exodus provides a great story for Israel to tell their children and their children's children. And we, beloved, have a greater story to tell of our greater salvation and of a greater mediator than Moses. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Our story is rooted in this story. Both stories rooted in history is part of God's grand plan of redemption. We're part of it. It's as part of our story all fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, found in the virgin birth of a baby who grew up into manhood, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He laid down his life on a cross. No man took his life. He laid it down. He had the power to lay it down. He had the power to take it up again. He raised the third day. He ascended. He sits at the right hand of God, the uh, the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning now and forevermore. And he will return again in glory and judgment. That's the redemptive story that shapes us. Defining who God is, who we are, and whose we are by way of saving faith and by way of union with Jesus Christ in this new covenant relationship. See, Exodus, in the Exodus, Israel had to know and remind the children who they were, whose they were, and who God is. This is the completed story. And this is the story we're to make known to our children and our children's children, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors. Amen. So if you're here this morning, Christian, may we always remember, improper remembrance produces proper worship. If you're here and you're running from God and you're on this religious wheel, maybe you're on this religious wheel. Maybe you're here because, you know, this is what mom, dad want. Maybe it's because this is what my children want and you're running on the religious wheel. Stop running. And fall down before the Lord. 
in repentance and faith. Amen.